Welcome to the Freaking Geeks Podcast, the flagship podcast of Freaking Geeks Media. In this podcast, hosts Michael, Sarah, and Barry crank the geekiness to 11, covering everything from movies and television to pop culture, video games, books, and so much more. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Okay, now it's time to start the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Jacob. Hello. All right, Jacob. So it was my turn to do a pick for our next movie, and I threw you a bit of a curveball, I think would be a good way to phrase it, because it's not a movie I think you were expecting. Uh, no, it, it really wasn't, but it's it makes sense when looking at certain other pop cultural phenomenons here lately as to why this came up. Yeah. So, of course, we are doing, as you could tell by the title, The NeverEnding Story from 1984. Uh, this movie has come back into vogue lately. Um, that's mainly due to Stranger Things this summer, if you happen to watch it. Uh, and you watch it all the way through, which, why wouldn't you? Uh, then you know about the the scene towards the end of the movie, of course, between Dustin and his girlfriend, when they start to uh, to uh, sing the theme for the never-ending story. And uh, <clears throat> I remember jumping online uh, in the following days after, you know, I finished, you know, watching the show. And it was just everywhere. People were like, what's this movie? And I would go to the theme song on YouTube and I would see in the comments, you know, I just came here from stranger things. How many people have come here from stranger things? Da da da. And then in the following like weeks after that, I started to, to see more comments about people that said, well, I watched stranger things. Then I went and saw the theme song on YouTube and then I saw a trailer and now I've already watched the movie and I love it. And you know, these are people that are, you know, teenagers and, you know, maybe people in their early 20s, uh, you know, that are you know, talking about how they've watched this this movie from 1984 and how much they love it. So um, that kind of led me to wanting to review it here. I mean, on top of the fact that I do think it, it's something you should review. We should review this movie. Um, it has a... a special place in my heart. I mean, this is basically a massive um, injection of uh, uh, nostalgia, you know, right into my subcortex. I mean, just just hit me with it because I watched this movie and it takes me right back to being five, six years old and, and watching this movie. So, um, and I watched this as a lot, a lot as a kid. It, I, I showed it to my wife um, maybe five or six years ago because um, she had never seen it. And and there you have it. You know, um, oddly enough, she never watched it, and and so we watched it, and she enjoyed it. So, uh, Jacob, what was your first experience with this movie? When did you watch it the first time? Oh, I was very young. I was, I was about like probably six or seven, something like that. It, like I have a lot of uh, German family, mm. 
So, like, the fact that this was a movie filmed in Germany and, and like, everything was, like, it was a German director. Ever Like, my family's like, we got him. Like, it's a big deal. And it really has, like, some of the Germanic influences, too. So, a lot of my family, like, loved the never-ending story. Like, we had, I remember even watching, like, the never-ending uh cartoon movies mm-hmm. growing up too and looking back and remembering about some of those like especially the the sequel to this and the third one not great not great oh but, the sequel you, you mean like the the sequel from the early 90s the movie yes yeah yeah like the this one is still very much the the best of them all uh so it's it's definitely um <clears throat> But even even then, eh, unfortunately, I've seen a, a lot of them, a yeah. lot of never-ending story stuff. Yeah, I think a discussion to get into sometime is is talking about the the fantasy genre and its rise in the eighties. Um, it's a genre that I think is, and you know, not to get off on a big tangent here, but. I think a lot of people kind of go back to the 80s now and they watch a lot of these fantasy movies, which either had a generally favorable reception or maybe not quite so favorable reception. And you're seeing a lot of these movies being revisited, like Labyrinth, and um, which has a, a massive cult following. Uh, a lot of people love The NeverEnding Story. I think that was more well-received. Uh, uh, Legend. Is, is another example of a movie that didn't get quite the critical reception I think that they were hoping for. In a, a lot of ways, it kind of led eventually to a dying off of the fantasy genre at that time. But you're looking uh, at people going back now, watching these movies and saying, you know what, these actually are really good movies. Uh, I'm not saying they have no, no um, weaknesses. Um, God knows Legend, uh, as much as I enjoy Legend, and, and I'm going to be straight up here, I, I do enjoy watching Legend. I think there's a lot of good in Legend. There's also um, some bad, too, in there as well. Um, but where some of these movies, I think, were completely trashed at the time, were not given quite the uh, praise that I think they are now getting, um, you're, starting, you're starting to see a turn with how people view these, these eighties fantasy genre movies. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also where part of the thing that stranger things actually kind of helps remind people a little bit. Same with like D and D such a fantastical fantasy based property that was actually very widely popular then died off for a little bit and became popular again. And, but media, like they even showed a, well, I think I said, um, one of the news clippings from towards the end of stranger things. Season three was like talking about how D and D has satanic worshiping and stuff like that. And I think it, it just kind of showed like society went away from, the fantasy side of it to more of the science mm-hmm. and the sci-fi ish. I, I feel like, because I don't know. I think it was easier for people to understand it 
compared to fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, yeah, a lot of these movies now have found a way to get to people in a, in a way they didn't at the time. Uh, part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that you, you're seeing real effects on screen. I think there's something about watching these movies and knowing that there's little to no CGI because CGI back then just it was in its infancy and it, its true infancy. Um, I mean, you could do very, very little, very little. I mean, it, what you're what you're capable of doing just was impossible to to do on the Neverending Story or any of these fantasy movies. So, you know, you had to use puppetry, you had to use prosthetics and you had to use just amazing set design. I mean, and not, not to get off the never ending story because it definitely has great set design, but you know, go check out legend. Look at some of the set design in that, in that movie. I mean that the set design in that, in that movie is insane. I mean, you didn't have the benefit of having CGI backgrounds. Um, it was just, so there, there are shots, there are shots in that movie. Um, there's a shot towards the end whenever darkness comes out of the mirror and his cloak is billowing behind him and it's a wide shot. And it is, even today, it's stunning when I, when I watch that, that shot, when it comes up on screen, I stop whatever I'm doing and I look at that shot because it just kills me every time because I know that I'm watching what probably took set designers, you know, uh, days, if not, you know, weeks, probably weeks actually to accomplish just in the, in the set design aspect. I mean, obviously you have to build the set, but after it's built, I mean, then to actually go in there and to decorate it and make sure that everything is, is what it needs to be partially why yeah. that scene is so amazing. Um, even taking the actors out of there. So, uh, that's, I think what we see, we're seeing just, just hard work, special effects that are all in camera. And I think there's something that we're seeing a, a bit of a movement these days um, of movies maybe starting to get away a little bit from the special effects, starting to incorporate more of the puppetry. Like, for instance, um, from The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix, which, you know, they could easily have just replaced everything with CGI. But, of course, they didn't do that. And it's all almost all puppetry with CGI where necessary. Yeah. Well, I think it's, there's a parabellum effect when it comes to stuff like that. Uh, like for the cost of CGI as well is it, it got very expensive to do CGI to where it was more practical, more cost efficient to do the, the practical effects and everything. And then it started to get very easy to do the backdrop of whatever you wanted on a green screen or all this other stuff to the point where it started to get cheaper. And now the practical effects are, are more expensive to do and having these set designs that are so in depth and so well done that it, it takes more time. It takes a lot more money. It takes just it's a lot more costly to do that nowadays because of how quick, easy and cheap it is to do a lot of the CGI we have nowadays. And like everything's become so streamlined. It's like half the time you can't even tell if something's CGI or not when it comes to just a backdrop of a city or a set. Mm -hmm. Um, like to the point where we're getting 
like what Marvel's doing now, the new innovative thing is the de-aging for CGI. And so to go back to this practical effects is for not like in the sense of a hipster, but it's the new like classic idea of doing something for a movie to make it seem more immersive. Cause there are some times where even though you can't always tell if CGI is CGI, there's some you can very much tell. And it's like, well, this just doesn't feel like they're actually there. And you can very much tell that, but like with practical sets and everything of the sort, it makes it seem that more immersive, that more intense when you're seeing them actually being able to touch certain objects in the scene and everything like that without it being uh too like i guess uh distancing from everything around them like it's one of the great things about um going back to the like the marvel movies iron man one was so great in the sense that the iron man suit was actually there yeah compared to how it is now and you can very much tell that it's cgi but it still like the one of the greatest things is seeing him interact with that suit in the first one is it's actually there and it makes it more immersive so yeah uh i guess we probably should get on to actually talk about the movie we kind of went on a fun <laughs> tangent sorry everybody listening to this uh you know we just you know talk about this movie and everything and its effect but also where it's uh it's where it was created, the time period, and and how people are revisiting the '80s now, I think is is something. It's not just that you know there's been this kind of you know obsession, I guess, a little a lot of ways with the '80s uh, in the last probably five or six years, but that uh, just things that cre- you know movies created in the '80s are now getting another look uh, all these years later by a younger generation, and they're saying, hey. This stuff's really good, and and they're they're enjoying it. All right, so let's do this. So the Neverending Story, uh, it was released on July twentieth, nineteen eighty four. It was written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson, with an additional writing credit by Herman Weigel. Uh, runtime of an hour and forty two minutes, a budget of twenty seven million dollars, which by the way was the highest um, budget for a film in Germany uh, at that time in in, in its history. A box office of twenty one point million, twenty one point one million domestic, eighty point or eighty million foreign for a total of eighty or of one hundred point one million global. Um, that's a bit of an estimate because the numbers get a little fuzzy, but um, that's about what it made. It's about hundred million dollars. Uh, the cast is uh, comprised mostly of unknowns, with the exception of one name: uh, Bear Oliver, Gerald McRaney, Noah Hathaway, and Tammy Stronach. With uh, Gerald Ma- uh, Gerald McCraney was is the only person that I recognize. Nobody else in that movie that I could tell has. I I don't recognize anybody. Either they were under prosthetics or they were you know child actors that uh, probably you know quit acting or it seems like they've quit acting. They quit acting not that long after the Neverending Story was filmed. So. Um, all right, let's do our one sentence review. So, Jacob, uh, take it away. Uh, I have never the never ending story is a heartwarming movie of the eighty that the the effects hold up with to today's standards. But not only that, the story and theme are 
also timeless. Okay. Uh, mine is, despite some special effects that don't quite hold up, the story, themes, and ideas of the never-ending story shine. All right, so let's move on. So plot synopsis. Uh, when a young boy takes a book from a bookstore, he finds himself reading a story that he eventually realizes is actually happening and in which he is a part of as well, uh, which is pretty simple. But that's basically, um, you know, on the broad strokes, that's what this is really about. Now, there's another aspect of the plot synopsis, which has to do with what's actually going on in the story, in the never-ending story book. Um, you know, a plot synopsis there is, is something like the the world of Fantasia is dying because uh, the nothing is coming and it's left to a young warrior named Atreyu to um, find a boy so that uh, that boy can give the childlike empress a new name so that it can save Fantasia. Um, and that's basically the synopsis, more or less, of the entire movie. Because uh, on one hand, you have the story of, of what's going on with Barrett. I'm sorry, not Barrett. Um, uh, all of, or no, God, Bastion. Bastion. Why? Yeah, Bastion, and what's going on with his life, and what's led him to where he's at, and what his experience is with reading this story, and then with the emotional realization that it, what's happening is actually happening. Um, and then on top of that. Um, you see the other side, which is the story itself, what's happening in the never-ending story as he's reading it and the struggles with Atreyu as he desperately searches for a way to save Fantasia. Um, so let's um, let's just kind of start into uh, the script here and, and talk about um, what's going on in this movie and its strengths and its weaknesses. So... Uh, let's start out with, with, uh, Bastion. So Bastion is this, you know, young kid. He's what, about eight to 10 years old, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And he's definitely younger. He's younger. Um, and he's being picked on. There's these kids who seem to, uh, beat up on him, uh, you know, chase him around. Essentially they, you know, make his life hell. You know, I think if you've ever had to deal with a bully as a kid, which, you know, a lot of kids did, um, you can, you know, understand what he's going through, which of course is, is he's just being chased around and being, um, you know, just made to feel, um, terrible because they don't like him and, and for probably no good reason. They just, you see him as weak or something and, and they find it easy to have him as a target. So on one of his attempts to, to run away, he goes into a bookstore to hide uh, and the kids run past and uh, he's a reader and uh, he finds a book that the bookkeeper, the bookshop owner has there uh, in the back. Uh, the bookshop owner tells him that he can't take it. And when there's a, a phone call, I believe it's a phone call, um, or maybe it's somebody comes into the shop, I can't remember which, but uh, he gets up to leave. Bastion takes the book and runs out of the bookshop and uh, takes it with him. Now, some little, little bit of background here for what's going on with him because uh, there's some other things that have happened in his life. His father 
is uh, kind of a bit of an uh, unemotional person, it seems, uh, for the most part. His mother has just probably recently passed away, um, hasn't been that long. Um, his, his father doesn't seem like a bad man in any way, but there's this idea that they've been um, just dealing with the death of – he's been dealing with the death of his wife. Bashan's been dealing with the death of his mom, and it, it seems like his father feels like it's time for him to to buck up and get mo- you know move on. Time time to you know reengage with life now, basically. Yeah, and um, you know that's really the only scene in this entire movie that actually features Bastion's father because otherwise he's not in this movie. Um, so Bastion takes this book, goes to school, and I remember thinking even as a kid that. I was impressed by the fact that he left and went up into the attic of this school. I always kind of felt like it was a, it was a little weird, right? Yeah. Cuz like for a kid that definitely seems seems very timid and very easily scared, like I remember growing up attics were terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Like that would not be my ideal place to go and hide out away from things. Cause mm-hmm. yeah. And they even got to allude to it. Like he gets scared. Like how many freaking times in this movie because of stuff that happens that makes the attic just scary. Yeah. I mean, so it's kind of odd. Yeah. Wind knocking open the, the, the windows and rain and, and stuff happening. And it's just, I always thought it was weird. And looking back, it's kind of even weirder now because I, you know, I don't, I don't know any school that has an attic like this. Sorry, <laughs> just don't. Yeah. Uh, this, this, this seems like an attic of a house. It doesn't seem like the attic of of a school. Um, yeah. They're never quite clear about that, but they, you know, like they do, they do show him going in, you know, up through the school and into this kind of attic area. Like, okay, um, I'll just just roll with it, I, I suppose. But anyway, so he goes up there and he starts to to read this book. Now he's packed himself a lunch. He has some food. He has a blanket if he gets cold. So he's, he's meant to stay there for a while. I, I, I guess, um, I'm thinking like, wouldn't your dad want to find you at some point when he'd be, um, worried that you're not home, but yeah. Um, but whatever. Um, so he starts reading this, this story. So that's basically, you know, how his story gets started. And we do go back to, Bastion from time to time as he's reading this, as he gets something to eat because he's hungry and then he gets a blanket because he's starting to feel cold. And eventually when he realizes that um, what he's reading is actually happening. Um, and then of course at the end, whenever he has a decision to make. And so that's kind of Bastion's journey is that he's reading this story and it's um it's almost like therapeutic for him in a way, and then eventually he realizes that it um, it's actually happening, and that takes on a different a different uh, um, aspect for him because he knows that uh, if this is actually happening now, all of a sudden his decisions and what he wants uh, has an effect on a lot of things. And then if you jump to the other side, it, it's Atreyu. Atreyu is the young warrior for whatever reason he's he's picked to to be the person to go figure like you can't find an adult you know here <laughs> now i know why i mean obviously because ray is a kid 
and Bastion is a kid. And so there's like this psychic connection in a lot of ways between the two. Um, yeah. and, and so you're not going to have that with like an adult and a child. I get it. Um, so we get introduced to the rock biter. We get introduced to, to a lot of characters initially. They're all puppets, almost all puppets. There's a, there's a couple of human characters there. And, um, Atreyu gets tasked with finding this boy and, you know, how to stop the nothing. And, you know, he's he's given what seems like pretty vague information, honestly. Uh, and then that's it. And so he sets off on his journey and it leads him to a lot of different places. You know, he initially his journey's fine. It, it seems pretty easy. And then, you know, he encounters the swamps of sadness, which for me is about as terrifying as a, as a kid as Bambi's mother dying, by the way. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, no kid who has watched that swamps of sadness scene when he loses uh, Artax, you know, like, how could you not, as a kid, I, I remember crying. I was crying real tears whenever the horse died. He was desperately trying to get him to, to come out. He was sinking into the swamp of sadness, and it was terrifying and just awful. It was like, screw Bambi's mom. Sorry, this is this is this is the this is the thing that really got me as a kid, you know. Um so, you know, he encounters, you know, giant turtle and, you know, he, you know, eventually finds his way to, oh, he rides Falcor. I mean, there's, there's a lot in this, in this movie and it's, um, you know, eventually he, he encounters a situation in the movie in which he sees the boy and that's when... Bastion realizes that he's the, talking about him. And and that's when the, the whole movie takes on a different shape because all of a sudden, this isn't about a kid just reading a story. Whoop-de-doo. You know, kid reads a story. It's charming. It's cute. But then when he realizes and when we, we as an audience realize that this is, this is a symbiotic relationship, that's when the movie takes on a, a different level, I think, for people that watch it. Yeah. It definitely... It amps up real fast. Once after the uh, swamps of sadness and the turtle conversation, and gets on uh, Falcor. Um, that was always. I think that to me is where it gets kind of, at least effects wise, gets muddled on that end. But yeah, no, that scene with the swamps. Yeah. As a more, kid, yeah. it was very sad. Now, like knowing more about it and everything, it's like, man, the people behind the scenes subjected that horse to torture. <laughs> like that poor horse. Cause like they, like that horse actually got stuck in the, like they pulled that horse through it. And that horse clearly did not want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you can tell, um, so, you know, he he consults with uh, Morla, who's who's the the turtle, um, and uh, there's no answers really there uh, except for to to find the Southern Oracle. So, you know, um, I, I'll tell you what. One of the things that I've loved about this movie is the world building. You know, there's an 
even as a kid, I remember thinking we're only seeing a a the tip of the iceberg of what is in this this world, right? I mean, the swamps of sadness, and and then you you go to the Southern Oracle, and there's just so many things in this world that we never get to see. Now it's based on a book, by the way. Um, there was a book that was written. It was the Never Ending Story. Um, it was it was written by. Uh, an author named Michael Endes, and he wrote it, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and he had some issues with the way it was adapted and all of that, which a lot of authors, you know, do. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot more in the book. And actually, when this movie ends, it's it's the halfway point of the novel. So there's a lot more that, you know, is in uh, the book that we don't see in this movie, right? But uh, aside from that, uh, we we have the Southern Oracle, which which Atreyu goes to, um, and this is and, and, and it it's such it was such a a scary scene for me when he approaches the Southern Oracle, right? Because he he comes with uh, Falcor. Falcor uh, ends up, you know, bringing him down to the Southern Oracle. Uh, I cannot remember the names of the 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 two people he meets there. They're so uh, crazy and like eccentric, and I love them. Indie Wook and is it Urgle, uh, I believe. Yeah, it might be. It might be. Yeah, Urgle. I know Angie Wook is. Yeah, Angie, yeah, Angie Wook and Urgle. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yep. So, um, he meets them and and he's basically just watching the Southern Oracle and and that's when a trade decides to go down. Uh, so he consults with the Southern Oracle and it was scary because you know these things will destroy you. These things seem like almost all powerful in a lot of ways. Um, and so you have to get past the first trial, um, and, and then you go to the second trial. And that second trial is the mirror, which shows the the viewer's true self. And that, and that's when he sees that it's actually um, Bastion, and that's when Bastion realizes, oh wait a second, <laughs> this is real. Um, yeah. So then then you have the the um, you go to to talk uh, to the Southern Oracle, and it tells him that the only way to save the the Empress is is for him to find the human child and for her to get a new name beyond the boundaries of Fantasia, which of course Atreyu doesn't understand because how is that possible? You know, that doesn't make any sense to him. It, it, it's just completely at odds with anything that he can understand. Um, but then all of a sudden the nothing comes along and it starts to consume uh, the Southern Oracle. And that's kind of uh, when they get out of there. And, and Atreyu gets uh, thrown into the sea, the possibilities, and, and he climbs up on this uh the shore um to these ruins and that's where he sees gamork so gamork which we haven't even talked about was terrifying as a kid i mean tell me that you weren't absolutely terrified of gamork as a child oh absolutely like the the glowing eyes and just the black fur and just viciousness of it is absolutely terrifying to any kid and it's just because like especially the way they let it like introduced him and it's just like he was just vicious and the basically the uh in a sense champion of the nothing it's like well that's just 
absolutely terrifying. Yeah, so the so you know for people that haven't seen this movie, uh, you know the nothing in on the screen is kind of represented as these these just gale force winds and these billowing clouds and like ripping things apart, like the land is coming apart. It's you know sweeping away all the sand and dust, and then it's like ripping apart everything, trees, all of it. it it's the nothing is essentially what it is. The nothing. I mean, it, its whole purpose is to. You could argue eat or destroy, definitely destroy, rip apart um, everything that has substance. Um, and yes, Gamoric is this giant black wolf, and it's it's a, it's the forerunner of the nothing. It, it it in a lot of ways you could argue that it's its representative. In um, its purpose, the nothing has sent Gamoric uh, to kill Atreyu because it recognizes that Atreyu, if he succeeds on his on its, his mission is the only thing that can actually defeat the nothing him the nothing whatever you want to call it um however, however you want to refer to the nothing um and so gamork's been trailing atreyu and it almost caught him once in the in the swamps of sadness so he and atreyu talk and that's when gamork explains that the Fantasia is how do, how do I explain this? Fantasia is is created and sustained due to humans and our propensity for imagination and for hope. Um, whenever that goes away, which is is essentially what it's ha- is happening in the world, right? That's when that's when things go bad. Okay, that's when. Um, that's when the the uh, the nothing gains power. So you know, Fantasia is human humanity. It's, it's an imagination, and it has no borders because you know imagination doesn't have limits, and so therefore Fantasia doesn't have limits. So when when people lose you know their dreams, whenever they lose their imagination, that's when the nothing gains power and it has come along to destroy Fantasia. And essentially, essentially what that's saying is, is in the nothing destroying Fantasia, it is wiping out humans and their ability to hope and dream and, and to have, and to imagine, a, you know, anything good. Um, and then Gamoric attacks Atreyu, Atreyu kills Gamoric and um, then Falcor rescues Atreyu and uh, Atreyu goes to what is remaining of Fantasia to speak with the childlike empress who is the ruler of Fantasia. And she's this young girl. She's about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and she explains to him that he succeeded because he thinks he failed, but he's, she says, you have found the child. And that, and, and as they're talking, things are getting worse and worse. The, everything's almost completely destroyed. Um, and that's when, the childlike empress actually speaks to Bastion and tells him that he needs to be strong. He needs to be brave and he needs to give her a new name. And, and that's when uh, he, you know, opens up the, the window, Bastion opens up the window and yells out the name that he is giving her. And the name is Moonchild. And I want to talk more about this because I've always found this to be weird. So at one point, Towards the end, there, um, Bastion says that his mother had a beautiful name, and that he would 
like to give the childlike empress her name. So I've always found that weird because I don't know any single person that would ever be named Moonchild. The only way I can, in my head, I could think is if maybe they were uh, Native American or something, which is possible. And it may be a, in a Native American name, they would be have a name like Moonchild, which I could I could understand. I could definitely see that being a possibility. It's the only thing that I can think of. Otherwise, I don't know anybody that would have the name Moonchild. Although today, with the celebrities naming their kids a lot of weird names like Coco and um, North, yeah, it's starting to feel like maybe not quite so crazy. But uh, <laughs> but you know, back back in the early eighties, I don't I don't think you you had people naming people. You know, I mean, you know. if they were, I don't know. It depends on how young she was when she passed and had him. Because if she was a child of the seventies. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe in the if she was like late sixties, you or know, early seventies born. Or or well, yeah, but I mean that no. That doesn't make <sighs> a lot of sense. Because yeah. if this is set in the early eighties, uh she was born Yeah. She was probably at least in her late twenties, if not older, whenever she died. But still, I mean, it's just, it's a bit of a weird one, and there's been some debate as to whether he actually says that. I don't know. I feel like I've I've, I've heard it pretty closely, and it does sound like he says Moonchild. But anyway, the end of the the end of this is that it works, and that all of a sudden Bastion is sitting before the Empress, and she holds this one grain of sand, which is all that's left of Fantasia. But there's still something there, and that now that he has given her a new name, he can wish for whatever he wants. And as long as he keeps wishing, uh, it'll make Fantasia like it was before and even better. And he does that. And the last scene that we get is he's, he's riding on Falcor. He, he actually flies past Atreyu because everybody's back. Everybody that died is back. The rock, rock biter, everybody, they're alive. Um, he, he waves to Atreyu who waves back. And then, um, he decides he wants to go home and terrify the kids who bullied him. And that's what he does. He flies down through the streets of this city and the kids are there and they see this. I mean, I would be terrified. This giant dr- luck dragon, you know, flying at you. I think I'd be sprinting too. Um, <laughs> and and then it ends with a bit of a, a I guess, a voiceover talking about that. Bastion has many other stories, you know, that he goes on and et cetera, et cetera. So that's basically the story of this movie. And now, you know, let's talk about the strengths. Um, the strengths of this movie in the script, in the script department is A, the concept. Uh, this is a pretty fantastic concept. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been any other stories out there that ever had a, an idea like this. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, the closest I could think of would be maybe The Wizard of Oz in a lot of ways that's probably the closest thing i can think of really yeah uh, and i'm sure there are maybe others that you know the author took um inspiration from but you really think about the story for this movie though even apart from the the book this is um pretty far out stuff here um this is this is the kind of thing that you don't you wouldn't see this much today because oddly enough i feel like we've gotten at times uh, far more conservative in in what we're willing to think about and dream when it comes to movies at times. Uh, not all the time, but I, I kind of wonder if this would actually happen today. If a movie like this would come out, 
I don't know. I'm not sure. But well, I think they tried yeah. to do something very similar to it in the mid '90s with Macaulay Culkin, Page Master. I thought about yep. that. Uh, I feel like that. That's a. I've. I actually. You know, it's funny. I thought about that after I watched this the other day. I remember thinking, okay, any movies that came out in probably the 15 or so years, 20 years maybe after this came out, that made me think. Uh, that made me think of this. You know, movie that came out was like this, and Page Master was the only one. Yeah. Uh, that I could think of. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I think the idea is pretty fantastic. Oh yeah, it is definitely a very unique and fantastic idea and premise that they that they wrote. I mean, it's kind of like why uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books were so popular. Popular yeah. is because like you want to imagine yourself in that world. Mm-hmm. And it kind of immerses you directly in the forefront and making the decisions and impacting the story. So, right, and and you know we should probably say too that um, you know the the whole Bastion reading this book, following his story. You know, the childlike Empress also states in the movie that there are other people following Bastion's story, which that's part of why it's called the Neverending Story because somebody's always reading about the story of somebody else and, and actually it happening. So maybe on some other planet somewhere, somewhat, whatever you want to call it, somebody is reading about the struggles and the triumphs of Bastion. Um, so in, in, you know, so there's other people that are reading Bastion's story while, where, while Bastion is reading Atreyu's story. And, you know, I mean, it's just, this is kind of this almost like a Russian nesting doll kind of thing, you know, yeah. um, where within each doll is another doll. So each of these stories, another story is another story is another story, um, which is, a, like I said, a fantastic concept. And, and I love it. So that is very strong. Um, other strong things about the script are uh, the represent or not the representation, but the way the characters are written. Uh, there's they're very vividly drawn. I know who Atreyu is. I know that he's mm-hmm. a brave young boy that he's set with a task that is difficult, that will test his character and his mettle in, in the most insane ways. I understand who Bastion is. I understand that he's gone through a tough time. Um, I, you can see where, where you know he's somebody who would rather read a book. He's a bit of a bookworm. Um, he's more comfortable in another world. And certainly with the loss of his mother, that's more understandable than ever. Um, you know, and I think there's there's very clearly some themes and ideas running through the Neverending Story, which are are very uh, strong. Um, what are your thoughts on all this? Oh yeah, no, it, it absolutely uh, like the characters are so so unique, so well written that like even for having as little lines as some of the characters do, they're just still like they're just they're different. They're unique. They're there's no mistaking. You may not remember their names fully or anything like that, but like you're like Ingi Wook and Urgle, like you may end up forgetting their names, but man, were they just so eccentric and crazy and just funny. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, all the, all the characters were really well written and really, just distinguished in such a way that you just there there's 
similarities to compare them and like make that connection and relationship like between Atreyu and, and Bastion, but they're they're developed enough to where like even though they had those similarities, they're very distinct characters. They're very different in a lot of ways too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I love the the characters. I love how they're drawn. I think the story in and of itself is very um, imaginative. And, uh, you know, as a there's like this magical, I almost want to say kind of somewhat aspirational and nebulous aspect to what we see in the story here. I mean, the, the nothing is never given an actual form. I mean, if anything, Gamork is probably the closest thing if you want to see, if you want there to be an actual form for the nothing. That's the best you're going to get. But the nothing is the nothing. And and I love that, that there isn't a, a physical form that we need to deal with. We understand inherently that it's lack of anything is what makes it so scary. Um, you know, I think that um, there are these ideas of, of what uh, a hero is and bravery and confronting your fears uh, and, and imagination and, and love that uh, it reminds me in a lot of ways of Harry Potter. You know, there's some themes and ideas that run through Harry Potter, which are very positive. And I feel like as much darkness as that this is contained in this movie, there's still actually a lot of really fantastic things uh, that we see kind of woven into the actual story. Now, I've never read the book. Let me just say that out. I know people that have. Um, so I can't talk too much about, you know, I know the author was not completely happy with what the script, and I guess he actually sued the studio, and that never went anywhere. Uh, that's not surprising. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. But just from somebody who has watched the movie, I can, I can honestly say um, this to me is... A pretty excellent script. I mean, overall, I think it's a, it's, it's a really good script. Uh, in fact, I gave it an 84 um, okay. because I felt like, um, you know, there's some downsides too. Um, what were your downsides, actually? Let's get into that before we move on to acting. Um, I, I will say there were some characters I would have liked to see a little bit more of and Agreed. interact a little bit more because, like, we kind of get introduced to the rock biter and the two other characters, the uh, teeny weenie or and the baddie. Oh, yeah. The, the bat rider, yep. uh, I, or night hop, I think it was his name. Yeah. Night hop, yep. yeah I, w- I would have liked to see a little bit more of some of those characters. It would have been really cool to see some more interactions there. And some of the other, other people of Fantasia that they kind of showed in, the first, like when they get to the ivory tower the first time, it would have been really cool to see some more of that and get a little bit more stakes, I guess, yeah. for the outcome of Fantasia. Cause I don't think it's represented as well as it should have been. There didn't seem yeah. to be all that many people there for like such a cataclysmic moment. Uh, you know, I felt like, wow, it's only like 30 people that live in Fantasia. You know, I think I would have liked to have seen a bigger crowd. I, I you know, something that kind of said, Hey, look, this is, this is a big deal. Um, yeah. And these are representative of all the people that are all the races and creatures that live in Fantasia. I think for me, one of the biggest issues I have with the script actually is going back to Bastion's father. Um, uh, one scene for Gerald McRaney to kind of 
do what he could with this whole, you know, storyline with Bastion and losing his mother. I think it would have been nice to see another couple of scenes to kind of beef that up a bit. And I would have liked and not, you know, I didn't need to see like a you know big emotional scene or anything, but I kind of do wish we would have revisited that at the end. You know, maybe, yeah. maybe um, just in a very even killed way, have Bastion, you know, at the end, like he, you know, he comes down through the streets, scares the kids and everything. And then instead of just going right into a voiceover, uh, it would have been kind of nice to see him, you know, go home where his father is, is terrified uh, and angry and, and, you know, kind of give some kind of resolution where, because, you know, you can tell in the beginning, they don't have very good communication. Yeah. Right. Communication is an issue here. Um, I almost get the sense that maybe they haven't even really talked about their mother's death. Really? Not really. Uh, in any meaningful way. Um, like there's a lot of kind of pent up, sadness and, and anger, you know, maybe in both of them, who knows? Yeah. But I would have liked to have seen just something where we see the beginnings of what could be a conversation between these two, where his dad is able to say, okay, we need to have a conversation. And you start to see them begin to talk. And then maybe we veer away from that and, you know, the movie's over. But it just feels weird that we get this one scene and we never visit it again. I mean, that's never resolved in any way. Uh, to me, that's the bigger issue I have with the script. There's a lot of fantastic stuff, but in an hour and 42 minutes, which I think is a fine running time, um, I do believe, honestly, that another, I think another 10 minutes uh, would have really helped this movie out. I think it would have given them another 10 minutes to be able to beef up some of these other scenes uh, in in the real world, um, yeah, and and kind of because if it feels very thin, uh, the world of Fantasia, fantastic, but the otherwise everything else, all the conflict that Bastion's going through in his everyday life, is is very is very thin. It, it's basically just um, thin setup for the real story, which of course is what goes on in the book itself and in Fantasia. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, something to kind of show that, like, even though he's trying to get his son to move on, like a a thirty second scene showing that, like, he's still sad and whatnot, but he's burying himself in work. The right. dad, like, something to help kind of get a little bit more, like, more of him because. It, like you said, it's very clear he's not a bad dad or bad person. No, he's just trying to do what he can considering it. It seems like it is still a very fresh loss Mm -hmm. and there. Yeah. It it would have been very much needed like another 10 minutes to dedicate to him. I wholeheartedly agree giving some a little bit more on that and maybe a little bit of uh, some kind of resolution. It doesn't even have to be like a big emotional thing. It could have just been like, like you said, him getting like worried and angry at first. And he's like, finally he's like, all right, we need to, we need to sit down and talk. Like, like here's an idea. So like, how about this? Um, Sebastian, um, 
Bastion is is able to ride Falcor and then um let's say okay for whatever reason he um he he ends up being back at the school um maybe outside of the school um and it's it's late now and obviously his father would be extremely worried he calls nobody knows where Bastion is uh, they haven't seen him and so a frightened you know, uh, worried, probably kind of angry, uh, father shows up at the school hoping to find him because it's the last place he was at. And he, he finds Bastion and then they get into a little bit of a argument, uh, in the car, you know, where, you know, he wants to know what's going on, why he did this. And, and that's when they kind of get into, uh, you know, Bastion, you know, he can't tell his dad about the, the Fantasia. He's never going to believe it. He knows it. But, you know, given what Bastion's been through, it allows him to finally open up and be honest with his dad in a way that he wasn't before. And I, and I don't need, like, you know, don't need a big emotional scene necessarily. They're just a bunch of tears. But, you know, something that says, hey, look, um, I see that you're going through it. I understand. You know, maybe his dad can say, look, uh, I, I, it's been hard for me too. Um, I was sitting at home worried about you and I was thinking about your mother and I knew I just, I couldn't lose another person. You know, I couldn't lose you. I, you know, we just, we just lost your mother and now, you know, I knew I was terrified and I'm sorry I was angry, but I had to find you or something like just something that says, there's some kind of resolution between these two, something that points them in the right direction. So that's really all I kind of wanted to see from from that. But you know, otherwise there wasn't too much issue wise. I think that the main characters are very well drawn. I think the characters, the other characters, are eccentric and weird and goofy and just odd, and I love it. So, and I think I think the story is is excellent. So, all right. So you gave the script in. 86. 86. Okay. So overall, our grade is going to be an 85. Let's move on to acting here. So, you know, there are some actors in this movie that are not puppets, uh, or at least uh, with heavy prosthetics. But most of the the main acting is done by Bear Oliver and Noah Hathaway, who play uh, Bastion and Atreyu, respectively. So... You know, we have Gerald McRaney again for that one scene. We have the childlike Empress again for like one scene. So so 95% of the heavy lifting, and then you had Urgle and as well in there, and um um Angiwook as well. I mean, they're you know, human actors, obviously, and some prosthetics, but not that much. But that's it. That's pretty much it. I mean, there really isn't much at all. Um, if you're talking about the majority of the acting, it's done by these two children. They're, they're kids. I mean, they're, they're you know ten years old, maybe twelve at most. Um, they're not even teenagers yet. You know, when they were in this movie, and um, I thought they acquitted themselves rather well, actually. Um, there was, you know, there was a, the occasional scene. I remember seeing there was a couple scenes in the movie where I was like, eh, okay, that maybe could have, they probably could have done another take there. Um, but, but I would say for the most part, I thought the acting was actually, uh, really, really solid. 
um, but yeah. for these for these child actors. I'm not saying it's you know awards uh, worthy uh, acting, but this they acquitted themselves well. I, I think they would be actors considered strong enough to be on like Stranger Things or something, which have yeah. some of the strongest child actors that I think we've ever seen. So um, anyway, what were your thoughts on the acting? Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. There, there were a couple of moments here and there, but like for, it's one of the things that's always very difficult for uh, children actors to do well is just to be able to have a good variety of emotion and body language and get that balance without seeming too over the top. Uh, and honestly, they did a very, uh, generally did a really good job. Um, but like you said, there was just a, a moment or two, especially considering like, it's really mostly these two child actors for most of the movie. So it, it definitely fell on their shoulders a lot. So for that amount of pressure and weight on them, they, they did a very, uh, very good job. Yeah. Yeah, they did uh, really good. I gave them an 81 and I know that might seem a little low, but um, you know, I, I think that for me, I actually felt like Barrett Oliver was a little bit of the weaker of the two. Um, and and I, and I say that, He's not a weak actor um, because I think, like I said, they, they both acquitted themselves well. But I felt like Noah Hathaway is Treyu. I thought he really stood out to me, you know, yeah. as as maybe the stronger. I mean, he really he had, from an emotional standpoint, he had more areas to go easily. Whereas I'll admit, for Barrett, it was a little more difficult because he's reading a story, and there was only a few times in the whole movie where I really felt like he could emote uh, in a way, and he's. Obviously, his character is introverted too, right? I mean, uh, Bastion is an introvert uh, as a character, and I think it kind of comes across in the in the movie. So, but I gave it an eighty-one. Makes sense, yeah. Um, uh, or ninety-one. Eighty-one. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, I gave uh the acting an eighty-one as well because we both kind of seem on the same page when it comes to some of the stuff uh yeah it is very difficult to kind of have a lot more of those emotional beats when you're reading a book it just makes it very difficult uh to portray that a little bit better and have more chances to as an actor so no no hathaway definitely had a lot more opportunity and was able to do it a little bit better okay all right let's uh go on to directing um this was the English uh, language uh, directorial debut for Wolfgang Peterson, who has gone on to direct uh, plenty of movies over the years, um, blockbusters and all that stuff. So uh, this, I think, was it was a good choice for him. He had just finished uh, Das Boot, uh, which was a harrowing experience for him, an excellent movie, but a very harrowing experience for him to direct. And so he was, he relished the opportunity to do this. And I actually think he does a good job here. Again, it's, it's, um, you know, he's dealing with a lot of child actors, obviously he's dealing with a lot of puppetry given, you know, what they're trying to represent with Fantasia. Um, you know, and I think considering everything that he had to work with, um, he acquitted himself. Well, it's a lot like the child actors. I felt like 
you know, could he have done a better job? Yeah, I mean, but some of that is also limit. There's limitations there, special effects wise, with Falcor and everything. That doesn't help anything. Uh, but that's less about him and just the state of the effects at the time. You had green screen behind Falcor um, trying to show, you know, moving landscape and everything, which is probably what something they did in like helicopter or something with a camera. Um, but overall, um, I think it's pretty effective. There, there are some nice shots in this movie. There's some nice sequences. Um, you know, the editing is is pretty solid. Uh, so overall, I gave him an eighty-two. Um, yeah, he, it is very difficult to do some of the stuff, especially being a first time for his first English movie. He did a, he did really well with what he had. Uh, the, the it is like you said, very difficult to kind of do the the Falcor flying scene without it coming across a little cheesy or anything like that, but it still managed to do it pretty well. Um, but yeah, I also gave it an 82 and I promise we did not <laughs> share our grade. Like we did not come up with these grades together. I think, I think we have a hive mind because you know, sometimes, sometimes our grades just, it's almost eerie the way they line up sometimes. Yeah, um, it, it is very surprising because it was literally a couple of minutes before we started recording. We, I told you my grades, and it was just yeah. Yep, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, because I got I like to calculate everything. Uh, yeah, now and uh, so that I have Makes everything ready. So but, I'm trying to do it in the moment. But it, it's funny. I was just. It's just like you, wait, your grade was what? Are you serious? <laughs> Your grade was that? It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So we, uh, we, we line up a lot more, I think, than I thought we would. Um, all right. So let's move, yeah. on to, let's move on to special effects here. So, um, you know, the special effects are are good. I mean, look, you have the practical uh, effects going on, the in-camera effects. You have, uh, you know, the green screen that takes a bit of a beating. It just does. I mean, it, it doesn't um, – the stuff – the scenes of the Falcor are not – uh, nearly as good as as they could be, and in today, it uh, I'll admit it's it's a little like cringy at times. I'm like, oh boy, but um, but that's that's the biggest complaint there. Uh, I love all the puppetry. You know, this isn't a Jim Henson production, right? So the fact that they were able to create these fantastic puppets is really a testament to the money that they had available. Twenty seven million dollars at the time. It's a pretty big budget for 1984. Um, and the fact that they were able to do so much with it. Um, you know, there was a little bit of, of effects going on, I believe, with the uh, the Oracle, Southern Oracle with a blue glow and everything. Um, but, you know, by and large, I thought this, the effects are pretty good considering their age. This is, not, this is a film from 1984. Um, they did a, a lot... Uh, of the effects about as good as you could possibly do. And yes, some of them are not going to hold up. They just won't. But a lot of them do because they aren't CGI and they were physically there in camera. So overall, I gave the effects a 77. And I, I think that's uh, it's a pretty fair grade. I think 77 is good because I think it says, hey, look, these are pretty solid effects. They're older. You got to take that into account both for the good and the bad. Obviously, you have to knock a few points off because they aren't, you know, some of them aren't very good anymore but then you can't knock off too many because you have to understand that there are limitations of its era and you know you have to be fair to it so i gave it a 77 yeah it, it, there were some of those uh 
like the Falcor scenes and the one where Fantasia was in rumbles and like chunks. It just it it could have looked a little bit better. Maybe put a little bit more effort into the green screen stuff, and because it does not hold up in those moments very well. Like the puppets all hold up really well. And like you said, the for not being Jim Henson, great puppetry, like fantastic. Um, but yeah, there were still some of those issues. Uh, I gave my score for special effects at a 79, 79. So Again, another close grade. So our overall grade for special effects is 78. Overall, of course, 82 for directing, 81 for acting, and and, uh, 85 for script. And uh, let's move on to pacing. Pacing for this. um, You know, the pacing is uh, okay. I mean, it's it's solid, uh, which I think is a lot of – I feel like this movie, grades-wise, is uh, pacing here. It's an hour and 42 minutes. But – while I feel like the stuff in Fantasia generally is pretty good, um, I feel like the stuff of Bastion is a lot less so. And part of that has to do with just the fact there wasn't as much to, for them to um, to do with this storyline. Um, but then just the, some of the the missing information or the lack of information and then just going back and forth between Bastion and what he's doing and Atreyu and what he's going through. So while I feel like the pacing is is solid, I don't think it's it's spectacular. I don't think it's a real weakness, but um, I think it's just solidly done. Yeah. So I gave it, I gave it an 80, uh, 81. Okay. Um, yeah, there definitely could have been more uh, of the non fantasia stuff to help kind of balance it out a little bit, and some of the stuff we've already kind of talked about when it comes to the stuff with Fantasia was really well done and really pretty solidly paced and whatnot. So, uh, overall I gave it an 80. Okay. So that's an 80, uh, for pacing rewatchability. I gave it an 85 to me. This is a movie and maybe it's just part of the nostalgia in me. Uh, for for watching this uh, when I was a kid, but you know, I, th- I still think even today, I think a, a young kid can probably sit down and watch this and find it enthralling. Uh, it's a movie that um, I could sit down and watch. You know, I don't watch it all the time, but it's got a to me, it's got a pretty high rewatchability because it does have a lot going for it. There's a lot of positive, and again, like I said earlier, you know, in this podcast, you know, whether it's it's legend or you know, the dark crystal or labyrinth or never ending story. I mean, there's a lot of really great, what I feel like excellent fantasy genre, uh, movies that came out in the eighties, which are now getting a look back now. And people are saying, Oh, you know what? Maybe we misjudged them or, or maybe, uh, I never saw them. And I think they're fantastic now that I've seen them. So, uh, it's got a high rewatch- rewatchability grade for me. It's an 85. Nice. Um, yeah, I. It, it's something that is still very much in the background. Like, uh, definitely a nostalgic movie. Um, having seen it so many times, the only thing that kind of makes it a little bit rough to go back and watch too ma- too much is some of the effects can kind of and kind of hurt after a few times 
Um, but overall, it's still something I can something to go back and rewatch uh, multiple times and still watch again in the future because it's still a great story. Um, so I gave it an 80 for rewatchability. Okay. Uh, 82 then overall. So if we tally up our grades, um, we're basically got the same grade. I have an 81. You have an 81. Overall, it's an 81 because there's only like a couple points. You have like one where you're like a couple points higher. I have one's a couple points lower. It really just comes out to be the exact same grade. So that makes it quite easy to tally everything up because it's the exact same grade. So overall, it's an 81 for the never ending story. Woo, hive mind. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah, like we need to get a movie where we have very different, different opinions on the movie. Oh, for sure. So that'll have to happen soon. Don't want people thinking. Yeah, we're, well, like like comparing grades, making sure that we're we're close. It's I, I don't want that either. It's just you know, hey, yeah. those are the grades. Those are the grades. That's kind of for sure. what it is. Uh, all right. So everyone, uh, thanks for for listening to us talk about the never-ending story. If you'd like to send in your feedback, you can send it to freakinggeeksmedia gmail.com. and you can go to our website freakinggeeks dot com and you can rate and review the movie just as we do uh you can do that and you also go to patreon and check us out there on uh, www.patreon.com forward slash freaking geeks and you can subscribe to support the podcast and all that we do and that's it so jacob thanks for coming on and talking about the never ending story thank you for having me all right everyone thanks for listening we'll see you next time on the freaking geeks podcast Thanks for listening to the Freaking Geeks podcast. Be sure to visit FreakingGeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash FreakingGeeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Trust us, it really helps. Now, if you'd like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to FreakingGeeksMedia at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanich. You can contact Sarah on Twitter using at Labyrinth Rose or at Freak Geeks.